This episode is sponsored by Indigo, which brings together companies committed to activating agriculture as a nature-based climate solution. It enables farm innovation that can increase soil health, carbon sequestration, and profitability potential. Learn more at indigoag.com slash greenbiz. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how Black Lives Matter for big food, Volvo's plan to drive the green steel market, inside the war for ESG talent, and the startups vying to lead the resale market. Everything must go. This week on 350. It's July 23rd, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, back from vacay and another year older is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you, Joel. I appreciate it. (laughs) It's good to be back. Good. Well, I hope you had a a good enough uh, week off. I know it was uh, also some family or family business stuff you needed to do. uh, But also you got to take a drive. Uh, Where did you drive? You know, I drove from Knoxville, Tennessee to St. Michael's, Maryland, and uh, it was a really lovely road trip. I actually have never driven through the Tennessee mountains or that part of Virginia before, and uh, it was quite lovely. And uh, I have to say, um, I probably shouldn't say this because the people in St. Michael's probably don't want me to say it, but it's a really great town in Maryland um, on the eastern shore. You know know it, it right? Yeah, Yeah, so gorgeous. And uh, my stepbrother just completely moved there. So it was wonderful to hang out and spend some time just poking around. And I've got my my 87-year-old dad got to play a few rounds of golf. So everyone was happy. (laughs) That sounds good. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Glad you're back, and uh, that was your weekend review. But let's go to the Green Biz weekend review. All right, so I was reading up Joel on all the stories I missed while I was gone, and of course, because I love geeking out on startups, one of the first things that that caught my attention was uh, Lauren Phipps's uh, roundup, if you will, on six companies in the seventy-seven billion dollar. $77 billion. Whoa, $77 billion <laughs> resale race. I mean, How much I just, is that again? First, yeah. <laughs> so first of all, I just, I, I, I haven't, I don't think I've fully appreciated just how big the whole re-commerce market is getting for, um, particularly for apparel. Although, of course, I'm, I'm interested in electronics. That's an entirely different story. I won't go there right now. But this this is a, a, a sort of a, a primer on some of the, platforms that are coming into play um, to help the the apparel brands and retailers and so forth uh, handle this process. And of course, we, we've written about Trove. I think, actually, I think you were the first person to write about them. Way back for, when they uh, were called us. Yeah. Yertle. Yertle, yeah, um, because it, it's a company run by the former um, 
Walmart chief sustainability officer Andy Rubin, founded by him and and, Adam and also Warbach. from Amazon, yeah. right? To Adam Warbach. Yeah. yeah. So like really cool company, lots of great institutional knowledge. But there's some really up and coming companies like Depop, which uh, of course is the one that was acquired by Etsy um, earlier this summer in a $1.6 billion uh, transaction, um, Vinted, which is kind of a secondhand, you know, like I, I, I always remember, Joel, you probably do too, as I used to go into New York City to the village to go all the secondhand shops. And these sound, these sound like, these sound like my kind of shop, <laughs> except online now instead of, uh, instead of, uh, you know, in, in, this, in the city. But, um, anyway, it's just a, it's a great piece, I think, on, um, just what's the, the great, uh, technology that's coming into play. And I think you have some things to say about this too. Well, yeah, I mean, this is different than those secondhand shops that you went into in the village. And, and so many of us, you know, did back in the in the day in college, and, and a lot of people still do. Um, these are uh, primarily companies that are working directly with brands to to bring re-commerce to those brands. And so we've written a yeah, Yurtle, which we wrote about, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, works with uh, REI and Patagonia and Eileen Fisher and a number of others, and they create what's called white label. In other words, they create a storefront for those companies to run. In Patagonia's case, they're, uh, I think it's called Warnware, uh, but it looks like a Patagonia store, but it's all run by Trove. In this particular case, they do all, of, no, nothing ever goes back to uh, to Patagonia or any of the other companies. Uh, the products go through the Trove's, Trove's Warehouse in South San Francisco. They clean them, they photograph them, catalog them, and make them available for resale on the uh, Patagonia Warnware platform. And again, it looks like you're just dealing with, with Patagonia. And so now this is really uh, you know happening with a lot of other brands. And you've got companies that are, are, are working uh, with uh, you know, all sorts of brands to provide the, the engine, the, the back office, the, the logistics for these kinds of things. And as you said, uh, some of them are now unicorns. I think the re first one was the real real uh, became the actually one of the very first circular economy un uh, unicorns. In other words, valued at a, a billion dollars in market capital capitalization. And now there's there's uh, a number of others. And so I think what's really interesting is to watch where these go and which of these becomes. I mean, look, we've been doing we've been doing uh, resale for a long time. It's called eBay and a, and a hundred other sites. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. in fact, one of these, uh, the, the one called Archive, allows companies to let their customers do peer-to-peer -peer transactions. Right. And so does Recurate. Yeah. Re yeah. The so there's one. Yeah. There's a couple so, of them doing that. Yeah. So so there's lots of different models here, and it's going to be really interesting to see which one, which models take off and which companies take off, and ultimately they'll all be owned by... Uh, Amazon, somebody, <laughs> you know, maybe right. eBay, uh, you know, and and it'll be this is just a huge. And by the way, did we mention it was seventy seven billion dollars <laughs> annual market? At least. I don't know. Uh, I got geeked out by that number. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. let's let's go. Out. I want to geek out on on green steel because I think that this piece Sarah Golden wrote this week for her Verge Energy newsletter uh, it was really terrific because it it. it looks at, first of all, what Volvo is doing and, and the partnership they just launched into with a, a Nordic steelmaker called SSAB uh, that wants to commercialize a process to produce steel using hydrogen instead of coal 
as as the main power source. I mean, the big problem with steel is the uh, energy intensive intensity intensity. (laughs) 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 That's a mouthful. Yeah, the intensity of it. And steel is one of the most energy intensive industries in the world. 11% of, of all global emissions. If it were a country, it would be the third largest contributor of carbon dioxide behind only the, the United States and China. So the United States of steel is uh, is, is a big problem. But what, what Volvo is doing is really interesting. They just announced uh, basically a plan to offtake some of the steel from this company, SSAB. And it's really early stage in terms of, uh, you know, is this going to, we don't even know what vehicles it's going to go into. Is it going to go into a, a prototype or actually a production vehicle? But this is the first step. You know, we've been talking about green steel forever. And and now we're starting to see markets actually to develop. Uh, and it probably won't be that long before it just becomes a thing, a normal thing, just like renewable energy, uh, green steel. And at some point, it won't even be called green steel. It'll just be called steel. <laughs> right. Well, there are two things that jump out at me um, from this story. One is the fact that to your point, it takes a partnership and a really concerted sort of venture, uh, you know, like specific intentional ef- effort uh, venture to to do this sort of thing. So uh, Volvo is very closely working with those other two organizations, including the, uh, the Vattenfall, the, the utility there uh, as well. The other thing I'm thinking about is the, the fact that, you know, as, as we know, automakers are subject to a lot of safety um, considerations, right? So they're going to have to take this this steel and basically test drive it if you will make sure that it meets the um the requirements and quality concerns that that it meet that that would be required of the uh, material that was made any other way so yeah it is a little bit early but um definitely you know shows that volvo is intentional on this i know others are, are starting to think about it as well so cool thing to watch And I'll take us to our final story of this week, Four Ways Coca-Cola, Nestle, and Other Food Companies Support Black Lives. Now, this was written by Teresa Lieb, who is our food systems analyst. She's helping out with the Verge uh, food program, and she's uh, now the the, uh, author of the Food Weekly Newsletter. And this piece came from from her most recent edition. Um, And what what I found fascinating was she, she kind of had started with this thesis of, hey, the food companies have talked about um, doing things for underserved communities like hiring and and how and how they include them in their their workforce plans. And so she actually reached out to uh, ten different ones um, to kind of see what they're doing. So basically asking about their diversity, equity, inclusion goals, looking at their supply chain strategies for how they where they buy their products uh, and, the, and the raw materials and commodities that go into their food. And uh, did it, she did an analysis of, of, of you know, where, where some of these folks are going. She kind of focused in on the ones that she felt were, were um, doing the most notable things. And there's a lot to, to, um, to parse in this story, lots of details. I think for me, one of the, the one of the things that jumped out was how Coca-Cola was uh was really working on this. They had two goals that were really fascinating to me. One was its, uh, it, it, you know, target to align its employee population with U.S. Census data at all team levels within this decade, and that's that's a first of all. I mean, I love that it's so specific and so um, 
you know, it's not like randomly picked. It's 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 aligned with demographics, and it also includes you know everyone from entry level to management. So I think for for when you when you look at companies, I think one that's a very telling sign is if you see a lot of employees in the lower ranks, but you that that are of color, black, Latinx, other other underrepresented communities, women. And then you look at the management level and there's a there's a difference in those percentages. That's kind of a, a flag, right? That what's preventing those those individuals from climbing the ranks and becoming part of the leadership team. So its intention to to do to kind of set that goal for all of the management levels, I think was pretty notable. They also have a pretty aggressive um, uh, spending program plan for its su- suppliers. So like it's really focusing on doubling its spending with black owned businesses over the next five years, reaching at least $500 million. Now, I don't know, I don't know where that baseline is coming from. So maybe that's not, I don't, I can't really judge how, how big of a change that is. But um, I think that when you, when you look at specifics, those two things really jumped out for me. What about for you, Joel? Well, so first of all, this is just a, a great initiative that Teresa undertook here. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, obviously a year over a, little, over a year ago with George Floyd murder uh, and this uh, great swell of, of, of commitments and interest uh, in racial equity by the part of companies and, and everyone running those white, white type on black, you know, Black Lives Matter and statements that, that sort of became de rigueur at, uh, back in, uh, I guess, around June uh, last year. She did, said, okay, great. Let's, it's a year later, let's go back and look at how those are actually playing out inside mm-hmm. companies. So as yeah. you said, she talked to 10 companies, Anheuser-Busch, Coca-Cola, General Mills, Kraft, Mars, Nestle, a bunch of others. And, and uh, to see what, you know, whether they're walking their talk. And one of the yeah. things she found is that, you know, the intentions are still there, the commitments are still there, but there's not a lot of actual metrics and reporting frameworks behind them. Mm-hmm. So, and this is a problem we've seen this in, in in sustainability. We used to see it in sustainability overall, but now with uh, global reporting and ESG and so many other things, it's no longer just to uh, hide behind your good intentions. And and what she looked at is that okay, a lot of good intentions here, but not a lot of measurable uh, progress yet. Um, and she talks that looked at some of the ways that companies are doing these things, including Coca-Cola. Uh, but it, you know, it's clear that that after the great surge of of interest across the world uh, around Black Lives Matter and and, and a lot of uh, the whole issue of, of racial equity, that. There's still it's still not front and center on the menu uh, with big food. So I guess we're going to actually do a fourth week in review story this week, Joel, because your your piece on the war for ESG talent is just burning up our website. <laughs> Tons of people are reading it. Um, and uh, I, I found it to be a really comprehensive look at what this interest in environmental, social, and governments issues is doing to the sorts of individuals inside the companies that have to deal with this. I mean, who are we hiring? And P.S. Can we hire folks? People who has these skill sets? Um, so, just curious about like where where the story um, 
emerged? Um, what, what got you onto this? I know you, you spent a lot of time researching this. Uh, so give us a little context on that. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, credit is due to uh, our good friend, Ellen Weinreb, whose sustainability-focused recruiting firm, the, the Weinreb Group, is really ground zero for a lot of this action. But she told me about this, that, uh, that the challenges that uh, the big consultancies, financial services firms, and, and companies and even NGOs are having in finding enough quality uh, ESG talent. In other words, a demand for analysts, strategists, and others knowledgeable, knowledgeable about environmental, social, and governance issues. And uh, in some cases, they're, you know, they're, they're just, they can't find enough talent or they have to, you know, bring in junior people and try to train them up pretty quickly. And that was pretty interesting. I mean, we haven't seen that before in the sustainability world. It was always uh, sort of a, a buyer's market for sustainability talent. There were there were farmer people looking for jobs, and there were actual jobs. And now the script has been flipped, and 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 there's all of a sudden this uh, huge demand. I mean, thousands and thousands of, of of jobs that are either available now or soon will be. So I talked to a number of, uh, of, of, of headhunters, of, of others who are actually hiring and looking for these people. Let me play a clip from my, the interview I did with, with Rich Madison, uh, another, another good friend of ours. He's the uh, head of ESG products at S&P Global and also the, the CEO of, of TrueCost, which is part of S&P Global. They have, uh, they're looking to hire, uh, I, think, I think he told me, 160 or so. Uh, new people in the ESG thing just right now. That was how many job openings they had. Uh, but he also had some really interesting things to say about the evolution of the field and therefore the evolution of the kind of people they're looking for. Uh, let's listen in. We're entering what many people term ESG 2.0. Could it be ESG 4.0 or 10.0, depending on perspective and how long you've been around for. But um, I would say that really we're at the stage where the demand for talent is extremely hot. You know, we're seeing a lot of swapping and changing of talent. And I think the reason for that is because what people are looking for right now, what to begin with, what people are looking for is someone to take on the job of trying to figure this stuff out who had already done some other stuff before, right? So you're talking about someone who might be someone relatively senior or middle to senior in a company who can just start to pick up some jobs. Now what's happening is that it's moved and gradually progressed from that position to someone who's actually starting to lead efforts within a company to coalesce and coordinate, to someone who's moving the company from spreadsheets to systems, to someone who's now leading the company from the perspective of, for example, understanding what your investors want and how you need to position your reporting and your strategy respectively to someone who actually is driving capital allocation within a company who also knows about ESG and investors uh, who can drive sustainable outcomes and is senior enough to get the attention of the board. So we've, we've, we've traveled a journey from you know, mid-ranking someone uh, who can coordinate and learn to, to actually a whole team who needs to be sophisticated enough to be able to deal with uh, multiple different types of stakeholders and really understand uh, the world of business, the world of strategy, and the world of finance, and the world of regulation. And those people are rare. <laughs> and so I, I, do, I do think we, we're, we're at this point now where there's almost a, an expectation, I think, to, to, be, to have someone at your company that is able to bring all of that together that has 
you know, a 10-year experience of working on sustainability, uh, has also got, you know, 20 or 30 years of business experience, a strategy experience, can talk to the board, can talk to investors. And I think, you know, there's not many people uh, at the moment who are skilled enough to do that. I think for me, Joel, one of the most interesting things about this, if you think about where we are in this moment, uh, post-pandemic, lots of folks are looking for jobs. Um, this could be a huge opportunity to bring in individuals who have not traditionally been part of the, quote, sustainability professional, if you think about it, those who might not have the credentials or skills that that um, we typically look for when we're recruiting, but who might have the sort of mindset and, and interest and ability to learn those skills. So I think this is seems like a wonderful opportunity to to reach out to communities and to help reskill and, and maybe to, to be part of the, the movement in terms of uh, post-pandemic job creation, if you will. One of the, the, the interesting data points in your piece was the fact that PwC is hiring 100,000 <laughs> individuals. I just, I just about, my jaw dropped at that number. I'm just wondering if you can give us more background on, on that program and, and maybe, you know, like help me understand, like, could that, could that pull in entirely new individuals into this into this game? Yeah. Uh, so last month, uh, PwC, the global consulting firm, announced an amazing commitment to they're going to spend twelve billion dollars uh, to create a hundred thousand net new jobs in ESG by twenty twenty six. So that's a just they 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 have a two hundred eighty four thousand employees now. So they're going to add uh, basically a third more to that. There's an asterisk, though, that needs to go with that because, and this is one of the interesting things about this ESG field right now, is that the term ESG, which really began in the financial services and investing field of talking about the, the reporting and the, and the analysis of, of firms around their ESG commitments, ESG is now becoming synonymous with sustainability. So I'm seeing more and more uh, companies saying, oh, we have a new ESG program. And I say, oh, it's interesting. And it turns out it's a recycling or a water reduction or some other traditional sustainability initiative. And so PwC's initiative is in that general field. And, and that conflation of, of sustainability and ESG is more prevalent in Europe right now than, than in North America, but starting to see it uh, over here as well. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I talked to uh, Robert Bischoff, who's the uh, managing director and European ESG leader at uh, Strategy And, which is PwC Strategy Consulting Group. And uh, he's really, you know, at the front line of this uh, uh, war, as, as he called it. Um, and, and I asked him to talk a little bit about what they're looking for and how they hope to find the kinds of people that they're going to need over this next five years to make to fulfill this awesome commitment. Here's what he had to say. And clearly, there is a case uh, for us as a firm to to help our clients do that in all kinds of facets. That ranges very much from from strategy and ambition level setting to reporting, disclosure obligations to new products and services that are being developed under the roof of ESG. ESG sort of we use ESG and and mean all kinds of sustainable developments. And for that matter, we are looking, obviously, to strengthen our team, which has very different elements. So that ranges from people that have capital market background in ESG 
in in reporting and governance functions, uh, but goes all the way to people that have a background in in engineering capabilities that we need to help our clients when they want to do that sustainable information that is backed by innovations um, in some sectors. So it's a, it's a very broad range of skills. Uh, we believe that sustainability is not a standalone topic aside from others. Um, so it will be an integral part of the business model, the business strategy, the go-to-market and the operations of organizations and to, to, to help firms very holistically what we do in all kinds of different metiers. This is our approach. But Heather, I want to pick up on one thing you said. You you talked about you know can this massive demand for ESG jobs enable those who maybe weren't as employable before? That's an interesting thing, and I didn't really write about this. But some of the some of the comments that have come in, and there have been a lot, uh, both uh, emails that have been sent to me, and uh, particularly on, as well on LinkedIn, talked about the fact that this is still kind of elitist, uh, and that the people that are being hired are coming out of business schools, uh, coming out of you know the Presidio or, or other schools that are directly uh, looking at at uh, focused on ESG and sustainability. And and these are the people who go to those schools often aren't as as hungry, let's say, or needing to to have revenue or income right away. They may make a little bit more of an investment in their career. They're spending a lot of money on their education in the hopes of doing that. And so actually, there is an equity problem here that will need to be solved. Uh, I don't know how to do it. That may be another article that we write. Practically, probably should be another article. But um, it's 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 just fascinating all around because I really think this is a, a sort of a microcosm of sustainability writ large right now in terms of uh, as this field has really ramped up. And I loved the quote from uh, Aaron Kramer, who's the CEO of of the now called a Just and Sustainable Business Group, BSR, he said, you know, there's a land grab for, for good people right now because the day we all, all hoped for would be here is now here. Everyone and their brother and sister is interested in sustainability and ESG. And that's just, I think, first of all, really great news. And we should stop and celebrate that for a second or two. But it's also, I think, gonna, is pointing up the challenge of now that everybody's on board, do we have the talent to fulfill this need for this very important work? This year, the Women in Sustainability Leadership Awards Alumni Group honored 10 accomplished women in the field of sustainability, representing both the private and public sectors. I was honored to participate in this year's selection process as a judge. GreenBiz also played a role by helping publicize and cover the awards ceremony. This year's winners joined more than 85 past recipients of this recognition in a community focused on mentorship for women in sustainability. I asked each of this year's honorees to submit a reflection based on the following question. What advice would you give to another sustainability leader about how to mentor and develop diverse talent? The rest of this episode is dedicated to their responses. 
My name is Mona Benici. I work at Morgan Stanley Investment Management as the head of sustainability for the Global Real Assets team. As part of my role, I work with the real estate and infrastructure investment teams to develop and execute sustainability strategies across North America, Europe, and Asia. I think the best advice I can offer diverse talent in this field is two things. First, don't be afraid of defining your own scope of work. And secondly, be strategic about how you tackle change. So firstly on scope, clearly the interest in the sustainability field is growing big time. And that is great. But the truth is, many employers don't really know what the typical sustainability position should look like, let alone do they realize what we've studied or what we're actually capable of doing. Now, it may feel weird, but if you find yourself in a situation like that, I'd say don't be afraid of defining your own scope of work. I actually strongly recommend that you put on the captain's hat and steer the sustainability ship. In my experience, people generally are appreciative and respect you for doing that. The second piece of advice is on implementing change and really more about persuasion. As sustainability professionals, we spend a good chunk of our day convincing people and teams to either make some drastic change to the ways that they've been doing things for a very long time or take on entirely new areas of activity. Now, persuasion is both a science and an art And there's a lot of different ways one can go about it. My advice for young talent is to focus on developing a repertoire of techniques and methods that will help them affect change. Hi, I'm Robin Eason, Long Range Planning and Sustainability Manager with the City of West Hollywood, California, responsible for various initiatives related to sustainability, housing policy, mobility, the public realm, special projects, in land use and zoning. What advice would I give to another sustainability leader about mentoring and developing diverse talent? Well, my advice would be several fold, including empowering talent to live their truth, making space for them to directly present their work and ideas, offering support, guidance, and encouragement on their approach to assignments and workplace interactions, making sure they feel seen and heard as they grow professionally, creating a sacred space or a brave space for a sensitive subject matter to be discussed, speaking with them about the importance of developing a professional and personal development plan so that they can provide influence over the trajectory of their career, and finally introducing them to other industry leaders and peers that can foster additional connection, support, and growth. Hi. I'm Christine Brunelligno, Head of Sustainable Agriculture at Bayer Crop Science. I am responsible for driving impactful sustainability commitments in the agriculture business to positively impact the planet, increase the resilience of food systems, meeting the expectation of the society. Well, when it comes to give an advice to another sustainability leader about developing diverse talent in their team, One strategy that has worked well for me and my team is really to walk the talk and recruit very diverse talents. Expose your talents to new ideas. My team members 
all have very diverse backgrounds in terms of education, culture, nationality, gender, and generation. It is exactly this diversity that makes the conversation richer, energizing, and creative by listening to different voices and perspectives. Let's take an example. If you bring together two farmers, there we talk about farming. If you bring together one farmer and one digital data scientist, they will develop a new app for better farming. And they will have fun. With an approach based on inclusiveness and diversity, you become more agile in exploring new ideas. Importantly, when you are mentoring, you don't have the answers, but you bring a new constellation of collaborations where you can leverage different assets. For me, there are three steps. Mix, listen, and empower. Let them try with the confidence that you trust they can change the world we're living in. They have to figure out by themselves how. Last but not least, I believe mentoring is also about being authentic. It is the key to encourage a discussion in a diverse team. That's okay not having all answers. Just leave the doors open. Hi, I'm Elaine Shea, co-founder and head of corporate partnerships and marketing at Third Derivative, where we're building an inclusive ecosystem to rapidly find, fund, and scale the world's most promising climate tech innovations globally. One way I'm mentoring diverse talent at Third Derivative is by instilling in them the power of leading with vulnerability and authenticity and challenging them to combat their imposter syndrome by taking hold of opportunities. This includes working actively to create more opportunities for women and BIPOC individuals to champion their growth, always asking, what can I do to support you better? I'm Jennifer Holmgren, the CEO of Lancet Tech and the chair of the Lancet Tech Board. My goal is to make single-use carbon a thing of the past. My passion is ensuring climate justice and climate equity and ensuring a future where every child can see a blue sky. Developing diverse talent requires transparency, communication, and constant learning. This is important in ensuring an equitable workplace that is actively welcoming and where everyone feels comfortable expressing their true self. At Lancet Tech, we have an employee-led IDE initiative. We call it BLEND. BLEND was created by our team as a way to more formally increase awareness of social issues pertaining to IDE and to make sure resources were available for self-education. The focus of Blend is to highlight and celebrate the diversity within the company through inclusive events and to work with our HR team to recruit and retain diverse employees. As a leader, you have to be committed to ongoing education, to improvements, and to be open to re-examining workplace policies and procedures. IDE doesn't just happen. You have to work hard towards that very, very important goal. I'm Rachel Hodgson, President and CEO of the International Well Building Institute. I also serve on the board of Second Nature, and I'm the co-chair of Paul Hawkins' board on regeneration. 
One of the ways in which I mentor and develop diverse talent is that I never turn down an informational interview with someone. I've done dozens of these over the years, and sometimes it seems like the requests come at a moment when I just don't have the time, but I make a point of making the time. And a lot of those individuals have gone on to do amazing things, have incredible careers in sustainability, um, and sometimes even intern at my organization or get a job at my organization. As the CEO of my organization, I also have an open door policy, and this has left the door wide open for mentoring relationships with a number of my staff members. This has allowed me to provide them with coaching offline, uh, the kind of conversations that we wouldn't get to have in everyday meetings or interactions. And it's been amazing to see how some of my team members have grown and thrived and such a privilege and an honor to be a part of it. In short, if you want to mentor and cultivate great talent, keep showing up for those individuals and always be willing to have a conversation. This is Gina Saganik, CEO of Healthy Building Network. The advice I would give to another sustainability leader about how to mentor and develop diverse talent on their team is threefold. My first piece of advice would be to get your own house in order. Make sure that your network is broad and diverse so that you are continuously cultivating new relationships that provide varied perspectives and fresh ideas that challenge your own positions. Further, aggressively educate yourself on diversity, equity, and inclusion topics and seek authors and voices from communities outside of your own. Secondly, it is important to maintain a curious mindset. Curiosity and listening go hand in hand and are necessary for successful mentoring. Be prepared to support new ideas and approaches that are different from your own. Ask questions and coach. Don't prescribe. Support the mentee as they critically think through their ideas and accept that they too will learn when things don't work out, just like we all do. Finally, mentoring is a two-way street. One of the gifts of mentorship that is often left unsaid is the opportunity for the mentor to learn from the mentee. Mentoring, if done well, establishes a long-term relationship that is mutually beneficial. It is the gift that keeps on giving. A beautiful quote that sums up mentoring and leadership is this, a candle loses no light, lighting another. Let that phrase inspire you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned this week. Speaking of events, we've got uh, the Verge Net Zero coming up uh, next week, and I hope you'll tune into that. It's a free event. You have to register, so go to greenbiz.com and you'll find information about that. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Greenbiz.com slash newsletters is how you find out more about them. We love to hear from you. Your comments, your questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Greenbiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Indigo, which brings together companies committed to activating agriculture as a nature-based climate solution. 
It enables farm innovation that can increase soil health, carbon sequestration, and profitability potential. Learn more at indigoag.com slash greenbiz.